The sermon passage today is Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Thank you, Jamie. You may be seated. Let's pray together. To our eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who is and will ever be our firm foundation. As we reflect on what you have revealed to us about yourself in your word in recent weeks, we are overcome with awe at the splendor of your kingdom at how it reflects your holiness. And we long for the day when you will bring it to completion. When your justice and your righteousness and your grace and your mercy will be exalted. When your rule and your reign will be established. And when we will see your glory undimmed and unhindered by our sin and our frailty. Until then, though, we look around us and at our own lives and we see how far short we fall of your kingdom and your glory. And we know how prone we are to temptation and sin and great wickedness and how easy it can be to place our hope in so many things but you. And yet, Father, knowing all of this about us, you you still sent your son to shed his blood on a cross. And you raised him to life again to redeem us from our sin and from hell and the grave. And for that, we will never tire in saying thank you. As we open your word this morning and as I preach it, please help every single word that is said to be of you. To point us to you and to exalt and lift you high. I pray for every person who will hear it. For those who do not yet know you. I pray that you would pierce the darkness and shine the light of your salvation into their hearts. For those who do know you, I pray that you would renew in us a sense of wonder that you would condescend to speak to us in and through your word. And that you would give us the eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know it as you do. 
I pray that you would shake us from our stupor and any sense of complacency about you and that you would fire in us a great desire to know you more, to pursue righteousness and holiness, and to live so that all who encounter us, our friends, our family, our neighbors, co-workers, strangers, even our enemies, that they would see you in us. And it is once again, and as ever, in the name of your Son, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we ask these things. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see you this morning. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 7. If you are new to Redeemer, if you're visiting us for the first time, we are in the midst of our series where we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And so as we prepare to look at this morning's passage, I think it is good and helpful to remember what, what Matthew has been sharing that has brought us to, frankly, some of these hard things that you heard Emmy just read. And they're going to inform what he has said here this morning. You recall, as Jamie shared at the outset of this series, that Matthew's gospel focuses intensely and intentionally on demonstrating to its original audience and to us that Jesus is who and what God promised he would be, that he has come to be the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And in the course of doing that, Matthew has shown us that from the outset of his ministry, Jesus and John the Baptist before him came preaching the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Matthew's gospel pretty immediately pivoted to the message that we now know as the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been working through that for the last several weeks. Interestingly, among other things, the Sermon on the Mount is in many ways and unpacking and an explanation of that foundational message. What do I mean? Well, consider the Sermon on the Mount, as we've heard, is essentially Jesus saying, this is the kingdom. This is how it's going to operate. This is what it will look like. And because that is true, this is how you ought to live. This is how your heart ought to be shaped. So let's break that down a little further before we dig into today's passage. Consider Jesus' message again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's flip the order for a moment. First, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, as Jamie preached when we first got into Matthew 5 a few weeks ago, the Beatitudes portion of the Sermon on the Mount really is Jesus telling us that this is what his kingdom is like. The things that will be celebrated and honored, and as we saw, it, it was, it is, and it will always be radically different from anything this world has to offer. But he says repent. Repent of what? Well, that's what he's been addressing for the last two and a half chapters. Remember, one of the temptations for his original audience especially would have been to think, wait a minute, we're the children of Abraham. We have the law. We have the prophets. We keep the law. We don't really need to repent. Jesus says, hold on now. He launches into this series of statements that we've been looking at where he says things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Because what he's getting at there is, look, maybe, maybe you have tried to keep the letter of of the law, and that not well, but you have utterly missed its spirit, and your hearts are far from me. And then he calls them to be perfect as his Father is perfect. So why is Jesus so insistent on this? Why has he hammered away at this theme over and over and over again. And I think it's because he knows our hearts. 
He knows that we are drawn to this minimalist checklist type of thinking, hoping we can skate by on just the barest of effort and it be enough. But he wants our hearts. He wants our whole lives. And he calls us to a life and to a kingdom that we cannot attain apart from him. But then he offers himself to us. And that is a stunningly beautiful picture of the gospel that we proclaim today and every day to you. However, he also knows that our outward actions can so easily deceive us. Not only us, but those around us. We are deceptive people. Our hearts are deceptive things. And I think he knows that despite everything he's been saying, just over and over and over, trying to make this clear, we will nonetheless be tempted to think, excellent, now that I've got this, all I need is a new checklist. If I'll just do these things, then I'll be okay. Thank you, Jesus. I have got it from here. Now, probably we're not going to be quite so bold as to just say it out loud like that, but that can be the inclination of our hearts and our minds is to think, all right, now we'll just do these things, and then we'll be okay. And so it's, it's all of that. This is what has brought us to these hard passages this morning where Jesus is concluding the Sermon on the Mount. Although, in a sense, he really kind of concluded the substance of it last week. You know, as Nick shared with us, Jesus' statement in verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and prophets. That is in many ways the capstone verse of the Sermon on the Mount, as evidenced by Jesus' statement. That, that sums up the law and the prophets. So having made that claim, then he's now preaching almost a little, a little coda to the sermon, where he offers these warnings, I think, as a, as a guard for us to help prevent us from falling into these same traps that others and our own hearts so readily set for us, that, that can make us think we are being obedient to him when in fact we're not. And I recognize that it, that can feel like a very negative framing to all of this, but, but it's because these are real substantive warnings that we need to take seriously and wrestle with, but, and this is so important, they are grounded in an unshakably encouraging hope that really will drive the sermon this morning, and it kind of serves as the main point of everything we want to think about today, which is this. Whether we face challenges from without or within, and we will, those challenges are coming. Our hope is built on and founded in the rock of Christ. And we cannot lose sight of that. So like I said, to get us there, Jesus is going to walk us through three significant warnings. And that's going to bring us to our first point, which is this. Beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. Look back with me at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Okay, at first glance, that's probably a familiar passage to many of you, and even if not, that seems fairly straightforward. Beware of false prophets. Check. Moving on. But before we rush through this point, let's make sure that we have a thorough understanding of exactly who and what we are to be watching for and how to recognize them. So what do we learn about the false prophets here? Well, first, he says that they will come to you. This is not a hypothetical thing that might kind of sort of happen one day, maybe in a place somewhere. That They are coming. And sure enough, throughout all of church history, from day one until our own day, false prophets have continued to arise, and we need to be on guard against them. So that is the first thing, is that they are coming. We need to be prepared. But the second thing we learn is that when they come, what does it say? They come in sheep's clothing, meaning that they're going to look really good and sound really convincing on the outside. 
We even see this elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, it says that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And this is an extremely important idea that we need to fix at the forefront of our minds because I think we can convince ourselves, and Satan is certainly happy to convince us, that false prophets are going to be these just crazy, snarling guys spouting off nonsense that are really easy to see. And to be sure, there are no shortage of crazy people spouting off nonsense. But Jesus also says, no, true false prophets, that's an oxymoron, false prophets, false, false prophets, I don't know, false prophets are going to be really hard to spot. In fact, when you go back and study church history, which you should because it's fascinating, but when you do, we see that kind of what we think of as the classical heretics, they weren't these people that had just gone raging off the deep end. They were usually really close. They were just a little bit off from the truth. And Satan's tact hasn't really changed there. What do I mean? Well, let me ask you this. Anybody here, anybody show up this morning struggling with thinking, all right, to draw near to God, I need to stand on one foot, hold my tongue the right way, and slaughter a goat by the light of a full moon. Anybody, anybody? No, I hope not, because that would be weird. Please don't do that. If you're struggling, come talk to us. We'll work through it. But, but no, I mean, that, that's not the struggle, right? No, what, what does happen is people come into our lives. They come into our churches. They come into our theological tribes, and they know the language. They know the vocabulary. They, they know the word very often, and they dress themselves up with it. But when we start to listen closely with the ears of the Holy Spirit, we hear things like this coming out, things that start to sound like, well, sure, Jesus saves you by grace, but then it's up to you to be good enough to keep it. Or, hey, if you're really a a faithful Christian, if you're a good Christian, then Jesus is going to give you lots of material blessings. Or maybe it's, I kind of ignore what they're saying about God and his word. What really matters is do they agree with your political and cultural preferences? That's what you want to listen for. So you start to hear things like this. Those are the messages of false prophets. Because what Satan loves to do is to take his lies and wrap them around a little kernel of truth. Those are the tough ones, right? That's what we need to take great care to discern, which should naturally lead us to ask, all right, so how do we do that? What do we do about this? Well, look back at verse 16 with me. You will recognize them by their fruits. And and this this is the key. This is what we have to do. And frankly, the rest of this first section of the passage down to verse 20 is just a summing up of that. Jesus saying what they are is going to be revealed in the fruits of their lives that eventually the wolf is going to show itself. Try as it might to look like a sheep, eventually the mask is going to slip. Life is going to bear out the reality that is underneath. In fact, that passage that we referenced a moment ago from 2 Corinthians 11 about Satan goes on to say, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So again, Jesus says here, you will recognize them by their fruits. Okay, so practically speaking, how do we do that? What are we watching for? Well, I think Jesus' use of fruit language here is really important, and it points us to a couple of things. First, consider everything that Jesus has been calling his people to over the last couple of chapters in the Sermon on the Mount. We want to be looking for that fruit in someone's life. Do they hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are they pure in heart? Are they peacemakers? Are they salt and light? Do they control their anger and lust? And do they honor their marriage covenant? Do they love their enemies? Do they give to the needy? Do they pray? Do they fast? Do they place their trust and hope in the Lord when all else is falling apart? And I'm not talking about moral perfection here, but if these qualities are just absent in the life of someone who claims to be speaking for Jesus, then take great care 
Be on guard. Secondly, and relatedly, there's another passage of Scripture that very famously speaks about fruit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, which our youth should know well because LJ's been teaching about it for weeks now. I hope you have been listening because it says the fruit of the Spirit is, you know it, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And isn't it interesting how closely that corresponds to everything Jesus has just been talking about? Here's a, here's a fun Bible reading tip for you. The apostles, the writers of the New Testament, never go beyond where Jesus already led them. He's told them, this is what you're watching for. You're watching for the fruit. Again, the standard this side of eternity is not perfection, but we should certainly see evidences, evidence of these things and be incredibly wary of their absence. So at this point, you may be thinking, well, you know, that's, that's good, but that's kind of hard to do. It, it's hard to, to discern that, and, and you're right. But I think Scripture does not leave us adrift in trying to do so. What does it tell us? Well, first consider 1 John 4, 1 through 3. You don't have to turn there, but do listen. This is important. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So we want to test the whole lives of these professed prophets against the whole of Scripture to see if it accords with what God's Word says. Of course, to do this means knowing them well enough to be able to test and consider their fruits. You know what? This is an especially tricky thing to navigate in our day because we have the illusion of great access to every teacher out there at all times, because this right here. And I say illusion because this can make you think you know somebody really well. You know what? Things on the internet can be wrong and untrue. You know what? Social media is not real life. It's not. That may be a shock to you. Social media, not real life. There's a takeaway for you this morning. But this can lull us into thinking we know people really well. And look, there is nothing wrong with listening to a wide range of teachers. I do, and I'm grateful for it. It can be a great blessing to us. But we must be very careful not to confuse that with thinking that we know these people, that we know their fruits. Because here's the thing. Jamie, LJ, and I, our elders, we are, we are far from perfect. I mean, LJ, he's pretty great, but I'm here. Um, but at the end of the day, you can see our lives. You, you can and you should. You talk to our wives. Talk to our kids sometimes. Talk to our friends, our, our neighbors, our coworkers. And see, are, is this fruit evident in our lives? Are we living out these things that we proclaim when we compare it against God's word? You, whomever you are allowing to shape your life and your walk with the Lord, test them by their fruits. Jesus is so adamant about this because a false prophet is not just a confused sheep. This is not somebody who's just making a mistake, showing it out. No, a false prophet is a wolf looking to destroy and devour you. So take care. Now, as a fun aside, if any of you here are fans of the genre of music known as reformed rap, you may listen with Prophet to Shailen's song called False Teachers. It is a searing indictment of some of the wolves I didn't have here. It's so good. I highly recommend it to you. Uh, but before we move on from this point, I do want to take a moment to caution against a couple of errors that are really easy to commit even when we're trying to be obedient to this, sometimes because we're trying to be obedient to this. On one side, we can be prone to developing this sinfully hypercritical spirit 
where we make no distinction among things that the Bible commands, among things that are matters of wisdom and context, and among things that truly are just matters of, of preference and indifference. Instead, we start to maybe fancy ourselves as like, you know, the SEAL Team 6 of God's heresy hunting squadron. We run around with our thousand-point theology quiz. Take this, take this. And then we get it back and we're like, ha, ha, ha. I see right here, question 989. You don't like Chick-fil-A. That is the Lord's chicken. Away with you, pagan, into the outer darkness, right? Like, we can get just crazy with this. And look, we laugh, and, and not to in any way make light of the seriousness with which we need to observe this warning, but do let us take great care in declaring, thus saith the Lord, when what we may actually mean is, thus prefereth me. Those are not always the same thing. But now on the flip side of that coin, if, if we can be prone to this hypercritical spirit, I think maybe even more common is we can also be prone to a, a, a frankly gullible naivety where we think and tell ourselves, you know, if someone makes even the most generic passing positive reference to a divine figure, we're like, all right, they're good to go. You know, what do I mean? Well, I am a, I'm a child of the late 80s and 90s, which means that among other things, I'm very cool. But secondly, that I was an avid acquirer of cassette tapes and CDs. And I'm a little afraid to ask our under-20s how many of you have beheld these ancient wonders, but they were amazing. Now, one of the things that was really important about a CD was back in the before times, you could not ask Google what were the lyrics to a song. You had to go to the liner notes, right? Y'all remember liner notes? Now, if you lived through that era, you know that something else that was in there was the artist thank yous. They would thank the people that had been important to them. And people felt compelled, no matter what their personal character or the lyrics of the album, to thank God. Every artist, thank God. Now, I, being an upright teenager of great integrity, would try to convince my parents sometimes, of course I need to listen to this album. Look, the artist, thank God. Clearly, it will be for my edification and uplifting. You know, that was silly, right? We can see through that now. But, man, in 2022, are we that much different? Because how often do we see some celebrity make positive reference to God, and we think, ha, oh, look, they're, they're the newest, greatest convert, or heaven help us, we hear a politician make some positive reference to faith and God and whatever, like, yes, that is a wise, mature believer who deserves my support. No, no, Jesus says to beware. The wolves are out there, and you better watch and know how to watch for their fruits. So that's the first warning, beware of false prophets. Now, lest you think the danger is only out there, Jesus brings us to our second point beginning in verse 21, which is this, beware of false confessions. Beware of false confessions. And in this section, Jesus makes an abrupt shift from these external threats, from those coming from others, and he pivots to internal threats, those arising within our own hearts, which I think can be far more subtle and far more dangerous. You look at verse 21 with me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that just got real in a hurry. What, what's happening here? Well, let's read on. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so Jesus is making two very big claims in one sentence there, and we need to consider them both, but let's take them in turn. First, again, the negative statement that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, he goes on in verses 22 and 23 to elaborate further. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Whew. That's, that's strong language. What, what are we to do with this? 
we want to read very, very carefully here. Because on the one hand, we could come away from this passage thinking, wait, so are we saved by our works? Well, no, that, that's not true. But on the other hand, we come away thinking, well, so does it matter at all what we do? And that's not true either. So, so how, do we, how do we walk this particular tightrope? By, by clinging to the entirety of God's word and reading very carefully here. So, so Jesus says that the people identified here call him Lord, but in some way are failing to do the will of the Father. And in response, they say, but, but look at all these things we did in your name. And, and without disputing the point, Jesus says, but I never knew you, which may be the four most terrifying words I could ever imagine hearing from him. And yet here they are, so we must wrestle with them. And I think the key to understanding the warning is what he has been saying all throughout the Sermon on that. Remember, over and over again, he's been pointing out to them that they thought they were being obedient when, in fact, their hearts were far from God. And that's playing out here because they're saying these words, they're doing these actions, but their hearts and their lives do not belong to Jesus. And what does that look like in our own lives? Well, I think this can take many many forms. And I went back and forth this week of trying to come up with a whole list of specific examples, but I don't want anyone to think you're off the hook here because we all need to be mindful of this. But there are two in general to which we can all be prone. The first is, you know, thinking that if we just know the right words, if we can just get the right answers to the questions on the great Bible test, then that will be sufficient. Or two, thinking that if we just work hard enough, if we just do enough good things, then that will be sufficient. And yet Jesus says here, no, it's not. It's not. And don't get me wrong, it is good. It is good to know deeply and well what the Bible teaches. And it is good to do good things, but we want and we must do them for the right reasons. Which is what? Well, thankfully, Jesus has not left us without hope here. Because there's a positive flip side to the warning. Look back up at verse 21. Jesus says that not, while not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, who will do so. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so I think it's fair to say that we want to be really, really clear as to what Jesus means here. Yes, we would like to know what it means to do the will of his Father who is in heaven. Well, as it happens, there is another place in Scripture where, in the Gospels, in fact, where Jesus is asked a very similar question. So flip over to John chapter 6 for just a moment. John chapter 6, right in the middle of the passage, Jesus is teaching here that he is the bread of life, the one in whom life eternal is found. And there's a really interesting exchange that happens in the middle of the passage. Look at verse 27. So John 6, 27. He says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Okay? But look at the question that some of Jesus' followers ask him in the very next verse. What must we do to be doing the works of God. Oh, now, now do you see the connection here? This is an important question. See what Jesus says. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. There it is. There's the work of God, that, that we would believe in Jesus whom he sent. So, so with that understanding, let's take that and connect it back to today's passage. Because again, our concern is to know what it means to do the will of the Father that we might enter the kingdom of heaven. So if we've learned from Jesus that doing the work of God is believing in him whom he sent, and we have, and if we learn from Jesus that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, and we have, then what is being revealed here is not that salvation is found in anything other than faith alone, 
by grace alone, in Christ alone. No, that remains gloriously, life-changingly true. What it does mean is that this belief of which Jesus speaks is more than just repeating some empty words. This belief is more than just doing some things because they seem like the right thing to do. This belief has real depth, real breadth. And what Jesus is warning us against here is a false, flippant confession. So what is a genuine confession? What will saving belief in Christ look like? Well, that brings us to our third point and Jesus' final warning. Beware of false foundations. Beware of false foundations. Look once more at verses 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it has been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And right there, there there's the key to understanding what Jesus has been getting at throughout this passage. He sets up, the, sets up this stark contrast between the wise man and the foolish man. So what is that? It's right there in the opening of this passage. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. This is the key. This is what Jesus has been driving at. But to what words is he referring here? Well, I think at minimum, all that he has been teaching up to this point, because remember, as Jamie shared a few weeks ago, the Sermon on the Mount comes on the heels of Jesus calling to repent and to believe, for the kingdom is at hand. So these words of Jesus here are for those who have done that. So much like when God gave the children of Israel the law, in Exodus, what had he done there? He, he premises the whole law on, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who delivered you out of the bondage of slavery. He said, because I have saved you, because I have done that, then you follow these laws. You live this way. So this sermon is coming on the hills of saying, you repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. And if you are in my kingdom, you look this way. You live this way because you are mine because you are part of the kingdom, here is the way of wisdom. Do these things, and what will happen? Then when the rains fall, and the floods come, and the winds blow, and beat on the house that is your life, you will not fall. What, what does that look like? What does that mean for us? Well, think about everything Jesus has said in these last three chapters. When hardships harass you, when suffering stalks you, when grief overwhelms you, when sin crouches at your door, when others revile and utter evil against you for Jesus' sake, when anger wells up inside you and threatens to consume you, when lust besets you and tempts your heart and body to stray, when your marriage feels like it is crumbling beneath your feet, when you are blinded by a desire for retaliation and vengeance, when you desire to cling too tightly to all of your worldly possessions, when your prayers dry up, when anxiety and worry beset you, and when all you can see are the faults of others around you, because Jesus covered a lot in these three chapters, but when these things come, and make no mistake, they will come, what will you do? Well, Jesus says, if you hear his words and do them, not if you repeat vain, empty phrases, not if you trust in your own efforts or if you just try a little harder. No, those are the choices of the foolish person who builds their life on sand. 
But if you repent and believe in him, then you will be brought into the kingdom where you will be made more and more like him. And your life will reflect these kingdom realities. Then when the rains fall and the floods come and the winds blow and beat on your life, you will not fall. Why? Because of what you've done? No. Because your life, your hope, your strength, your salvation are founded on the rock. And the rock is Jesus, as he will tell us about himself in just a little bit in Matthew. And Jesus will never fail. And look, as we conclude this morning, I realize that it can feel like Jesus' message is just pinballed all over the place here because it starts out sounding like we, we should look for fruit, but then doing good things is not enough. But now we need to hear his words and do them. And on top of that, our hearts are these slippery, wicked, deceptive things. We just want to throw our hands back. I, I give up. I, I don't know what to do. But, but don't miss the beauty of what Jesus has done here. He's gone to a people who thought they had it all together, who thought they checked all of his boxes And he has absolutely shattered them by pointing out to them that, look, the holiness to which I am calling you is so much more than you ever imagined. It's so far beyond anything you can do. And he's making that same call to us. But then he amazes them. And I I hope every one of us this morning, by offering to do what we cannot do when he laid down his life for us, And in his resurrection, he invites us into his kingdom through belief in him, which is the work of the Father. He makes us his own, and he says, now that you are mine, and because my Holy Spirit dwells in you, now go and live this way. Do not place your hope in false prophets. They will devour you. Do not place your hope in false confessions. It will fail you. Do not place your hope in a false foundation. It will give way. No. Place it in the rock and then trust him to uphold you when the rains and the floods and the winds come. You will not fall because Jesus will never fail. Let's pray together. Oh God, you, you are our firm foundation. You, you are the only foundation that will last. And so I pray this morning, if there is anyone here who has not yet placed themselves on your foundation, that you would do that in their lives, that you would bring to life dead hearts. Where there is darkness, you would bring light. And where there is despair, you would bring hope. And even if we do know you this morning, it can be hard to remember that when the rains and the winds And the storms come. But I pray that we would continue to trust you in all things. Give us the wisdom to discern when we are beset by false prophets. Help us to remember that that our hope comes not from ourselves, from our efforts, from our words, but, but from your word and your work. And as we go forward in this day and in these lives, May we trust you. Help us to trust you, whatever this life and this world may bring. It is once again in the name of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.